Make $10,000 per month with AI. Get in the latest crypto before it 10Xs. I will teach you to be rich. Retire at 30. <clears throat> there are many claims and methods today on how to make money. And money's been a very con common instrument used throughout time and culture. But the Bible transcends time and culture. I mean, how many books do you know of that relate to money that have been around for thousands of years? And I can't think of one. I mean, and the Bible, don't get me wrong, the Bible's not a money book, but there's certainly a lot of principles in it that talk about money. And sure, you know, we've got artifacts that describe transactions that have happened or economic conditions at certain times in the, in the world. Uh, we've even got, you know, some, some basic transactions and commerce. But, you know, there's one interesting thing that's different about the Bible. Sure, I mean, you're going to find that there are simple things in the Bible referred to about money in it that is common amongst previous cultures. But there's one thing deeper about the Bible different. The Bible goes beyond the superficial and it probes the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now this year, in my small group, we've been going through a study of money. Uh, we're almost finished. <laughs> Next week, I think we'll be finishing. And as we've sort of discovered, you know, there are lots of things that the Bible talks about in regards to money. And hopefully in this sort of small half an hour, what I'd, what I'd like to show is just how the Bible teaches us to go deeper with our thoughts and intents in regards to money because money itself can be quite an emotional decision especially considering the the blood the sweat the tears that you put in to getting it and so while there certainly are many passages i, I could have referenced I, I i i put the blinkers on and just wanted to focus on one chapter here in one timothy chapter six uh, again, it's, it certainly won't be an exhaustive study, and I certainly encourage you to, to further your study should it, uh, should it prick you to do more. I guess there's, there's two aspects that, that I would like to, to, to use as, as the main emphasis tonight going through this chapter, uh, and that is why work and why give? You know, thankfully, the actual concept of money is not a complicated one. As we know, money is a medium of exchange and it helps us to acquire things that we need and the things that we want. And because money is used as this common form of exchange that can help us to acquire needs and wants, uh, the Bible helps to identify how to answer these two important questions about it. Number one. How do you get it? 
And number two, what do you do with it once you've got it? I could help provide a quick summary of, of those answers. Number one, you can get it. You can earn it through labour, working of your hands, the most popular form detailed in scripture. And or, number two, you can possess it through inheritance. And or, number three, you can earn it from lending or investing. And or, number four, you can obtain it by way of receiving a loan. In answering the second question on what do you do once you got it, a summary from scripture would have you, would have you see that number one, you pay for it, you pay for your needs, providing for your household. And or number two, you can use it to pay for what you want, enjoy it. And or number three, you can invest it to provide future returns. And or number four, you can give it to others. And or number five, you can pay debts with it. Nothing really profound is there in scripture. We can probably finish up right now. That's it. Done. So but what's so different then about the Bible and regular money advice? Well, what you'll find with scripture is that it goes deeper beyond these answers. Especially these two questions which we'll look at today. Why work? Why give? There's a groundswell movement that would not have you want to work after a certain age. If you can learn to live on two-minute noodles for ten years, you can have enough to then live off for the rest of your life. And then there's giving money away. The world will tell you that's dumb, wasted, financially stupid. Why just give money away? It makes no financial sense. Unless, obviously, you're giving it away to receive tax concessions or other hidden services. So why does the Bible then run contrary to popular opinion? In the opening verses here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we see a relationship between the servant and his master. You know, while we don't have the same type of system established today, we do have one very similar with our employment. Notice though in this passage that God, through Paul, who wrote the letter to Timothy, goes beyond the mere transaction of service, but to the heart of service. Paul speaks to the servant first by emphasising they need to consider their masters worthy of all honour. Honour itself is not a foreign word in scripture and is used in various relationships where scripture explicitly teaches us to honour our parents, the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments, to honour one, honor one another within the church, honour God, honour widows, honour the elders, especially those who labour in the word, such as our pastors. They're given a special double dose of honour in scripture. Honour all men, honour the king, husbands to honour their wife, honour your own body, etc, etc, etc. So you can see that in the Bible this principle of honouring is to be applied to practically all faucets of life. In fact, for the Christian it should be one of the main areas of your own development in your own walk. 
And in our passage here, we can see this principle being extended into our workplace to those who are masters, our masters. But why? Notice that Paul adds at the end of verse 1 for why we should be honouring those in authority over us. That the name of God be not blasphemed. Did you know that your employment is important to God because of the testimony you can have to others who may never step foot inside a church or even open a Bible? And you thought you were just there for a paycheck. God looks beyond the superficial and seeks a deeper benefit behind your work. And it challenges us to check our attitudes that we have towards our boss at work. Does my attitude and output in the workplace honour God? And how terrible it is to hear within the workplace when even you are trying to evangelise to an unsaved person about their experiences of who they had as a colleague who was a Christian and some of the things that that particular person witnessed of that Christian person. You know, God does not want his name to be blasphemed. Do you know why? You know, in my limited experience, I've found witnessing to somebody who blasphemes the name of God makes it very, very difficult. I mean, think about it. You're using the very name of someone as a filth word. How could you turn that in your mind to now be your saviour? I found this especially with my grandfather and one of the difficult things I found with evangelising to him. You know, Jesus to him was just a curse word. Why are you now wanting to change my view on this word I'm treating as a filth word to now all of a sudden be my hope and salvation for eternity? It was a, a, a switch that he couldn't quite flick in his own mind. So can you see the importance? Work diligently with your hands. Give praise unto the Lord for the gifts and talents he has given you in your place of employment. And be honourable in all that you do. Now Paul also speaks to masters here in the second verse. What heart condition does Paul address here in the second verse? What word can you see here? touches the heart and isn't just merely a transactional thing. I'll give you a hint. It starts with D. Despise. That's actually the opposite of honour. So you can see here Paul's addressing sort of a spectrum. You know, it's easy for the, either the employee or the employer to despise each other. The employee can think their boss is the biggest idiot in the world. And the employer can think that their employees are lazy and just complain all the time. But God, through Paul, exhorts the servant to a positive action, to count their masters worthy of all honour, rather than spending the time counting the number of times their boss just got it wrong. And Paul exhorts the employer 
to negate the negative thoughts, to not despise them. Don't grow bitter and resentful towards your staff for the times they may have fallen short of expectations. It can be very easy for either side to compile a list of all the deficiencies and shortcomings of the other. But here Paul focuses the attention of the master on the shared benefit we all have in Christ and the blessing of having faithful and beloved servants. And Paul then adds at the end of this servant-master relationship to be reminded of these things. They are to be taught and exhorted because we can so easily forget. So why work? Is it so that we can obtain as much money as we can? Well, this is why Paul moves to a section next about men who teach different to what Paul has spoken about in the first two verses. Men who don't speak wholesome words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. In verses 4 and 5, we can see the manner by which these men converse and what they esteem, gain. They even go further by connecting gain with godliness. But instead, Paul combats this challenge in verse 6 with, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice that Paul just doesn't say contentment is great gain. Why do you think that is? Why does the right type of contentment need to be coupled with godliness? This is because our hearts can tend toward excess in things. Can be, we can become too content, which tends more to laziness rather than a state of contentment. There are many verses in scripture where we are taught to work diligently with our hands, not to be slothful or lazy, and to provide for the needs of our own household. It can be very easy to just sit back and do nothing with our hands and to declare that there's no real need to do anything because I'm content. And who can counter an argument like that? I'm content. Leave me alone. This is why contentment needs to be rightly coupled with godliness. So that our contentment stems from the result of actions where we have done the right thing according to God's word. Let me say it again. This is why contentment needs to be rightly coupled with godliness. So that our contentment stems from the result of actions where we have done the right thing according to God's word. And our contentment cannot be this high bank balance that will never be attained. Because Paul then further adds in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Verse 8, And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Paul adds perspective here. There's only a limited number of hours in a day and only a limited number of days in a year, and only a limited number of years to your life. 
Do what is right. Work diligently with your hands for your needs and be content. But the problem Paul addresses next is that we can get caught up in thinking we need more than our basic provisions, which leads to Paul's next point in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We can very easily fall into the trap of thinking we need more, that we need that house overlooking Bondi. We need five cars for each day of the week. And you can see how our hearts can quickly steer towards needing more, and this is what Paul refers to as coveting in verse 10. Coveting is the desire for something we do not have. We tend to think if we don't have something and if we can get the money for it, that we can get it and we'll be content. But a covetous heart is warned against even in the Ten Commandments, which states in Exodus 20:17, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbour's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbour's. So what is so evil and abhorrent to God about desiring money? Why does God use such strong language about loving money? Well, let's have a look at the preceding verse in verse 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Notice in this verse it speaks to those who will be rich. They aren't rich yet, but they're desired to be rich. What are the consequences that scripture details here? Notice number one, temptation. You'll be an easy target for scams. You'll fall victim to those who promise great returns. And I know I've definitely succumbed to this in my life. Number two, a snare. A snare is a trap. You know, there are many sophisticated schemes that may all have the right things. They may look legitimate, but it's a trap. And you'll get caught because of something you didn't expect or for something that wasn't fully disclosed. Again, I've fallen for things like that too. Number three, the foolish. A fool is one who doesn't consider thoughtfully their own actions. I've found when I do something dumb, I'm usually quick to rush into it. Without pausing for thought, without seeking wise counsel about it. And you know, marketing teams know this. They don't want you to think about your next purchase. That's why they have this phrase called impulse buying. It doesn't require much thought. And that's why they spend so many millions of dollars to reduce that friction of you being able to make that purchase quickly. And number four, hurtful lusts. 
You know, there may be schemes that make you a lot of money, but they may be taking advantages of others. Your desire to get money will overwhelm the desire to do that which is right. And something I've also witnessed reflecting back on the life of my grandfather is how money can even be hurtful to one's own self, even though it might not necessarily be self-evident. Can I give you a quick example? See, my grandfather developed a strong habit of saving money, keeping it for a rainy day, as he would say. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with saving money. In fact, I think it's a good characteristic of being a good steward. Spend less than you make. My grandfather was actually self-employed, and so his income was always up and down. So we always had to have something away in his bank account, just so there were those seasons where you couldn't make sales. But what I witnessed was uh, this habit developed into living on just the bare minimum. Soon, every cent was squirreled away, even when he was just a widower. Money I saw became hurtful and destructive to him because instead of purchasing, say, a new utensil or a broken appliance, he would rather go without. And even towards the last few years of his life, where his own body needed greater assistance and care to sustain himself, he didn't want to spend a dime. All the money he'd saved up for was now going to be for somebody else. And as I've shared with my small group, knowing those who are uh, going to be inheriting uh, his estate, I know that there's one particular party he never would have given a dime to because he knew what they'd be doing with it. Isn't that sad? It's great that you've been able to work hard, save up, be a good provider for the home, but where do you stop? You know, with all these warnings that God teaches us about money, we can see how if it becomes an object of desire, how it will quickly drown us in destructive paths and perdition. So how do we prevent this from happening? Paul moves on in verses 11 to 16. But we need to first remember to whom we belong. And Paul here, writing to Timothy, But thou, O man of God. Paul reminds Timothy of whose he is. And the action to accompany these things is to flee. And instead to follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. How different those characteristics are to the previous ones we listed. Our focus needs to be on Jesus, to do that which is right in a corrupt world. And that we continue in this manner, not just a one-off look. Notice here in the, in the passage here, until the... What? Morning? No, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can see that here Paul emphasises 
what we need to be focusing on, what we need to be desiring. And even though we cannot see Christ, we need to be following his commands. So why work? Besides receiving and having our basic needs met for food and clothing, it's so that we can also be a good testimony for Christ. And we can be thankful for his provision toward us. Lastly here, in the ending verses of 7.17 to 19, Paul states, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, not tr nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay, lay hold on eternal life. Paul finishes here by addressing those that are rich. Some of us may already be in this boat today, and I would probably think that a lot of us here would be in this boat if we were to con uh, compare against the average annual salary of everybody in the entire world. So how are we to handle our riches to prevent it from overcoming our desires? a few things here. Notice firstly that Paul provides two warnings. One, don't be high-minded and don't trust in uncertain riches. It can be easy to think that the wealth you have obtained has come about directly from your own efforts and to not see the hand of God in your life. However, remember, you didn't create yourself. You didn't create your brain. You didn't create the gifts and talents that have enabled you to obtain your wealth and you most certainly didn't create the economic conditions to obtain your wealth. There's so much to be thankful to God for and this is why Paul ends verse 17 by putting into perspective the source of our wealth, God. And a simple way to demonstrate our acknowledgement of this source is to be thankful to him. And in verses 18... To 19, Paul provides a practical guidance on what can be done. Do good and be rich in good works. What does God classify as good works? Well, Paul continues, be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Don't be reclusive. Don't withdraw from fellowship. How will you know how to be of assistance to anyone in the church if you're never here. And sure, it can be easy to justify why you shouldn't give. You can focus on your hard labour, the blood, the sweat, the tears. Why then give any portion to somebody else who had no help in obtaining that income? But this is why God is the model. Did the living God not do the same for you? Did God say to me, I think Ryan should earn his salvation. He's a capable bloke. He's got all the faculties to control his thoughts, words and deeds. 
he should do it all himself. God knew I couldn't do it. He knew our helpless condition. No matter how hard we tried to earn our salvation by our good works, we fell woefully short. This is why God gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. The famous verse, John 3.16, reminds us so eloquently of this deed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God is the model of giving. He gave something precious. It cost him. It met a need. And there were no expectations placed upon the recipients to perform. If this is what God did for us, how can we, who have much, be a testimony of God's love shown to the world in the way that we love others? You know, we can give too. Will it be something precious that we'll be giving up? Well, more money tends to be, doesn't it? We don't get money and just throw it straight in the bin. So it's obviously precious to us. Will it cost us in giving? Well, of course. We could have done something else with it. Are we giving to those in need? Again, you need to be here to be able to determine that. And we don't give with strings attached. We give cheerfully. So can you see how with our wealth we can do a godlike act and be a testimony to the world by giving just as he gave for us? And I actually remember there was a time when my grandfather asked, why do you go to church? Why do you give money? It's a waste of time. A waste of money. I'm I, 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 recalling now, I don't think I, I gave him the best answer that I could. You know, it's a great testimony to be able to explain to others why you give. Because of what God gave me. And I hope through my failure that if anybody asks you, a financial planner, mortgage broker going through your finances, What's this line here? Why are you giving uh, this much money? This could go towards the mortgage. You pay that off quicker. You can retire quicker. And then you can go and... Oh, the reason why I, why I give is because I believe in my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Do you know what he did for me? You know, God gave me so much. I don't care about the... Let me tell you about this. You see how money can be a testimony through our work and through the way that we give? The Bible transcends more than just strategies, more than just techniques. They just come and go. That's why there's no book that hasn't lasted millennia. Because they're all fixed on cultures and laws at those particular times, and they change. 
So as I finish up, just hopefully you can see, you know, how the answers to these questions you know, are very different to what the world would offer. And how the Bible is the only one that can go deeper than any other money book. And again, just so you don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with strategies, nothing wrong with savings, doing a budget. But hopefully, you know, as demonstrated here, you can see how by reading the Bible, by diving deeper, you can see how it reveals more than just the transaction, but the thoughts and intents of the heart. And having copious quantities of savings will actually not save you. But putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today will. Thank you. I'll invite Brother Mark to bring the final hymnal, 6.